please turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 24 through 29. Verses 24 through 29. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians 3, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Please be seated. Well, it is uh, good to be back with all of you uh, this morning. Um, myself and my family were away last week on a break, and we have been praying for you, and so encouraged to hear um, just God's goodness towards you continually, even last Sunday's uh, worship service and, and Pastor Dan's preaching. We are back here in Galatians 3, and we prefaced this a few weeks ago, how we are navigating our way through a very um, doctrinal, doctrine-filled, heavy theology, very nuanced portion of Scripture. Paul presents here, in, a very, in an economy of words, doctrinal truths that are rich uh, with, um, with insight and help to us spiritually. But they're just matter-of-fact truths. Really, the payoff will be next week as we look at chapter 4 and what, what it means that we are in Christ and how that has changed our relationship with God. He is now our Father, and how that affects us in our Christian lives, the existential, emotional, spiritual payoff is really next week. But to receive that joy, we have to lay the foundation continually, and that continues today. So for our study this morning, three simple points. These points highlight to us how the gospel and how our justification that we are accepted by God, by grace through faith alone, has changed everything. These three points highlight the three changes that has taken place for every Christian. For every believer, um, Paul wants you to know these, these three changes have occurred in your life. The first change is very significant, is that we were under uh, the law. While we're under the law, the law imprisoned us. It was our jail warden. It was also our tutor. But through the cross, by grace through faith alone, we have been rescued and redeemed from the law, and we are no longer in a prison we are no longer under a guardian. We are now in a family with God as our Father. Every believer, regardless of your race, regardless of your rank, regardless of your gender, we have that position as sons of God and God as our Father. Verses 24 through 26 tells us uh, how the law was our guardian until Christ. This highlights to us uh, the relationship that we had with the law. The law was our, the Greek word is tutor. It was our babysitter. It was our custodian. The law didn't have love for us. The law didn't want a relationship with, with us. The law didn't care for our souls. The law's directive the oversight, the stewardship of the law as our guardian was to teach us and train us, to uh, discipline us and scold us, to expose our sinfulness and correct sinful behavior. That was the role of the law. It was our guardian. And, in, and because of that, it was temporary. 
It wasn't a permanent situation. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I was born in New York, and people say, oh, that's why you have that accent. <laughs> and I say, well, well, I don't know, because I left New York when I was six months old, so maybe I learned really early. And New York's you know, accent is very strong, but I don't think that's the reason for my accent. It might be my fobby side or something, but it's not New York. So my parents, they're students struggling in New York, sent me to be raised by my grandparents in Korea. And when I was six years old, my dad came to get me to bring us back to, back to the States. I remember hugging my grandpa and grandma for the last time before heading out to the airport and hugging them and crying. You know, I was five, six years old, and I knew what was going on. But even as I was holding them, I knew enough to let go. I knew, even at a young age, that my grandparents were not my parents, that it was always a temporary situation, that my parents are alive, they're in America, right? They're rich because they own two cars, right? Streets paved with gold. They live in America. They must be wealthy. Wasn't, wasn't truth, but that was my perception at that time. I knew this was a temporary arrangement, and when my parents were to come to get us, we would leave. And even though I'll be sad to leave my grandparents, it's a greater thing. It's the right thing for me to be under my parents. That's what Paul is saying you who are seeking to go back to the law. You want circumcision. You want dietary laws. You want special days. You want Moses. Have you forgotten that that was a temporary arrangement? The law didn't care for you. The best that law could do was expose your sins, but had no remedy for your sins. The law could not cure what was ailing us our separation from God. All the law could do was expose and increase our sinfulness so that we might be ready when Jesus would arrive. So Paul is saying, Christ now has come. He has appeared. Why are you seeking to go back to your foster parents, your custodians, your legal guardians, when your father has arrived and Christ has made it, has come to make that transaction, that exchange occur. He is telling them to leave the law and run to Jesus because in Christ Jesus, verse 26, there is this incredible privilege granted to everyone who was in Christ. Verse 26. It's a, it's a simple declarative statement. But it's so sweet. If you understand the implications, and again, next week, it's going to be so wonderful. You want to run to Christ. You want to be in Christ. You want to be united to him. Because for in Christ Jesus, something wonderful happens to us. We don't go to another guardian it's not another prison. We're not being just transferred to another foster family, to another foster family. No. What happens when we are in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Right? Sons of God through faith. And in the Greek, the first word is all, pontes. Emphasizing here again, doesn't matter about your ethnicity, your rank, your social class, or your gender. Everyone, whosoever believeth, anyone who trusts in Jesus, right? not just forgiveness of sins, not just imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, there is this adoption into God's family where you are a child, a son of God. This is the climax of Paul's argument. John Stodd said, God is no longer our judge. God is no longer our judge who through the law has condemned and imprisoned us. God is no longer our tutor who through the law restrains us and chastises us. God through Christ is now our Father who in Christ has accepted and forgiven us. Therefore, we no longer fear him. 
we no longer dread his punishment that we deserve. Now we love him with deep filial devotion. We are neither prisoners awaiting the final execution. We are no longer minors under the restraint of a tutor, but we are now sons of God, heirs of his glorious kingdom, enjoying the status and privileges of grown-up sons. That is this great gift that God has given to us through Christ. Uh, for Ephesians 1, 3, says this was planned ages ago. This was planned, this was not a response to our need, response to our faith. Before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the earth, he predestined us to be adopted into his family as sons. And, uh, you know, you read Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, you got to read the two words that come before verse, four, verse 5, and it's, in love, he predestined us. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he bring us into our home? It's a very difficult thing. You ever have guests come over and come early and leave very late or overstay their welcome? They stay for days, weeks, or months. It's a very difficult thing to have people become part of your household. It's a messy thing, a very challenging thing. Why would God do this for us? What does he have to gain by having us enter into his family? Right? There's that story, um, that football player, Michael Orr, and he was adopted by the Tuley family, and uh, he becomes uh, a great football player for their high school and, their, and college, and he becomes a, a linebacker for... Um, uh, Baltimore Ravens. And so they were saying, wow, they must have adopted him because they saw that potential of him being an athlete and he would be their cash cow, right? He's going to be an uh, NFL professional player and they're going to make money. That's their motivation for adopting him. It's not, it's not true. You know, I, read the, I read the book, I saw the movie, that's not true. But some people were suspicious of that. Well, why would God adopt us? For what reason? What do we have to offer to God? What ability, what gifts, what righteousness, what holiness? No, we had nothing but sin. It cost God his only son. And yet he sacrifices everything and we gain everything. And the Bible says he did this because of love. In love, he predestined us. And um, if in our understanding of justification, we miss out on this filial, relational aspect, we miss out on the greatest privilege of our salvation, of our justification. If we see our salvation purely in legal terms, right? That is a real, like, pragmatic man-centered way of looking at salvation. This is a great deal. I get to have my sins forgiven. I get to go to heaven. I'll take it. But that is not the heart of God. Yes, God transacted this forensically in a legal setting. But the heart behind this legal transaction was love. Was so that we might be his sons and he might be our father. So we must not miss out on this relational aspect that we now have the privilege of, of having God as our father. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, Adoption is the Highest Blessing of the Gospel. Higher even than the gift of justification because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So we are, do as I say, do as a Christian, 
Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Is it adoption is a family idea? Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my real identity, my own real identity? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows this all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life. Yes, certainly. But we have something both higher and profound to say. This is the Christian secret to the Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. I agree with, with this dear brother. It is the richest benefit of our justification because it is relational. It is, it is love. It is affection. Now, how did this happen? How do we become um, a member of God's family? How do we get adopted by God who is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe? How did this amazing thing happen? Right? The Judaizers are saying you do it by works, by obedience, by doing certain things and avoiding certain things. You do this faithfully, then you'll be adopted by God. The Bible says, no, that's not, you, that's not how you get adopted. Um, uh, adoption, the Bible never teaches that we are adopted by works. Adoption shows the contrast between faith and works in the most vivid way, for no one ever can work his way into a family. Right. That is impossible. Let me illustrate this. I, I try to think of an illustration and... When I try to think, the first thing that pops into my mind is basketball. That just, I, that's not my desire. I, I, I wish something profound, something scholarly, some ancient poem from like, literature would pop into my mind. But no, just basketball pops into my mind. So let me tell you a tale of two men, right? <laughs> tale of two men and the, the family called the Lakers, right? <laughs> One man's name is Kobe. And the other man's name is Jim, right? Let me tell you about Kobe, what he has done. Well, these two men, they have different opinions about who the new coach should be, right? Kobe believes it should be Brian Shaw. Jim believes it should be Mike Brown. Well, let's see what Kobe has done for the Laker family. He has played in over 1,100 games for the Lakers. He has over 1,300 rebounds, 5,100 assists. He's made over 9,000 shots. He's scored over 27,000 points for this team. He ranks as uh, sixth on the league's all-time postseason scoring record. Regular season scoring list, he's fourth. 13 all-NBA team, 11 all-defensive team, uh, Two all-star MVP, or three all-star MVP awards. He's got five championship rings. He's done this for the Lakers. That's his credentials. The other guy named Jim, let's see what he has done for the Lakers. Zero rebounds. Zero assists. He's made no shots whatsoever. He has no awards. He's never played a single minute of a real game. He's never played with an injury. And he's never even practiced with a team. So for this family, whose will, right, who gets to make this decision for the coach? So maybe not surprisingly, it's not Kobe Bryant. It's Jim. Why Jim and not Kobe? Who deserves it more? Kobe. But who gets to decide is Jim. Why? Because of his last name. His last name is Buss. Son of the owner, Jerry Buss. Kobe Bryant can score all the points he wants, but he can't become 
a part of the family. He will always be an outsider. He might be in the Laker family, but not in the Bus family. Here is Jim Bus. He has done nothing in terms of basketball, right? In actual playing the sport. And yet, he's a part owner of the team and makes this major decision because he is in the family. So you can't work your way into a family, right? You can be a servant of a family and you could work and serve, do dishes, you know, wash cars, be the best uh, servant for the household. And yet after 20, 30, 40 years of faithful service, you will always still be an outsider. But a child, a son born into that family, right? doesn't matter his performance. He is a son and he gets the inheritance. How did we enter and become a member of God's family? If it's through works, then it is impossible. We will always be outsiders. If it's through works, we'll become paralyzed. Right? If it's by works, then we will fail miserably because we are such sinners. Paul tells us that it is through faith. It is through faith alone that we are sons of God. We've been adopted into God's family not by our will, but God's will, right? John 1.12, right? But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But to anyone who believes in Jesus, God grants him the, the privilege, the authority, the right to become a child of God. This entrance into God's family, this rich blessing of adoption, this inheritance that awaits us is by faith and not through works. That's the first change that has occurred in our justification. That's the first significant change that's occurred. We are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer in a prison. We're now in a family and God the Father, God is our Father. So we have to relate to him as our Father, not as our judge or not as an uncaring custodian. Second change is verse 27, our identity. Our identity. We are now united with Christ through baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are, we are united with Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. This expression of in Christ, into Christ, is found 172 times in Paul's writings. This phrase is used to describe the believer's Immersion, participation, union with Jesus Christ. We are Christians. We are little Christ in the sense that we are in him and he is in us. It's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Our identity. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This, this change, this cataclysmic change that has occurred is our identity. We have Romans 6, died with his death, been buried with him in our, in our baptism. We've been, we've been crucified. Our old, old self, behold, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has gone, the new has come. Who is this new person? Is Christ formed in us? Is Christ in us and us in Christ? The old is gone, the new has come. How did this um, change occur? And Paul says it's through baptism. Now, this baptism, is he talking about water baptism or spirit baptism? Water baptism, spirit baptism. You know, somewhat debated, 
pretty clear to me, it can't be water baptism because it, it would undermine Paul's whole letter. I mean, it, Paul would be completely inconsistent in his theology. He would be going back to where he was leaving from. His whole point was, our works do not save us. Our works do not get us adopted into God's family. Our works do not get us into Christ. It's faith alone. Is he saying, oh, you, you, you're doing, your, your theology is right. We're saved by works, but you're doing the wrong work. Instead of circumcision, you need to be baptized. Is that what Paul is saying? Right? You, you, it, is, it is sanctification by works, but you got the wrong work. Right? It's not circumcision, it's actually baptism. And that's the error of churches of Christ. They believe that it's baptism that saves you. And without baptism, you are not saved. And we asked them about the thief on the cross, and they changed the subject. Because the Galatians is clear, New Testament is clear, the gospel is clear. Jesus plus nothing is totally in can't pronounce his last name as said. Jesus plus, you should change his last name. Jesus plus nothing is everything. If you add anything to Jesus, if you add anything to the gospel, in your attempts to improve the gospel, you have destroyed it. You have ruined it. It is Christ alone. It is not Christ plus circumcision. It's not Christ plus baptism. It's not Christ plus obedience or sacrifice, prayer or quiet time equals justification or sanctification. No, it's Jesus plus nothing is everything. Paul is talking here about spirit baptism. How when we trusted in Christ, when we placed our faith in Christ, God sent the spirit and he washed us. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born again spiritually. It's spiritual, a Holy Spirit renewal of the inner man. Uh, Romans 6, Romans 13 that Paul is talking about. It is through this um, spirit work of inner renewal that we have been united with Jesus Christ. And so in this way, we receive all the blessings of Christ. We receive the blessings of Jesus um, not by imitating Jesus, right? Like all the infomercials, you stay up late and watch infomercials, and you know, P90X is very popular right now, right? So you want the benefits of Tony Horton, is that right, Horton? You want his benefits, you want ripped abs, then what do you have to do? You can't just believe in him. You have to imitate him and die for 90 days, right? <laughs> you have to. Just watching that commercial is not going to give you ripped abs. You're just trusting in him, depending on him. You have to imitate, right? You want to turn foreclosures into profit, right? Just watching that show is not going to cause you to turn flip houses and make money. You have to imitate his formula. And that's the idea of law. You want the blessings of Christ, what would Jesus do? And just do what Jesus would do, and you receive all the blessings. And Paul is saying, no. No, that's not what gets you into Christ and gets all his benefits, is through spirit baptism, which is by faith alone. This is a completely different message than the world. It's a radical gospel, euangelion, declaration of good news. We are helpless. We can't do anything. The faith that we, hit, we have is given by God as a gift. We trust God and we receive all his benefits. And the benefits are not ripped abs and it's not flipping homes. It's spiritual benefits, right? Being born again being saved, being justified, being sanctified, being glorified, being adopted into God's family is all affected through faith. And that occurs by being connected with Jesus through faith. Right? He is our power source. Right? So I was going to say everything, uh, as, you know, everything that is, needs to have a power source for it to work. That's obvious, right? Whether it's a microwave, 
or a television, right, or a phone. It has to have a power source. Jesus is our power source for our spiritual life. And how are we connected to him? It is by faith. It is abiding. It is trusting. It is depending. It is a spiritual work of faith, not our outward activity. Outward activity is the fruit. And when we are trusting in him, he is dynamite for us. When we are not trusting in him, then we are without power. The third change The first change is adoption into God's family. We are now sons of God. Second change is our identity. We are no longer who we are, who we were. We are now in Christ. We have a new identity. We've been united with Christ. We're Christians through baptism. Thirdly, our unity. We are united with one another in Christ Jesus. Our relationship with God has changed. Our relationship with ourselves has changed our relationship with one another has changed, right? It's vertical, right? It's within oneself and with one another. Uh, Philip Reichen has said, much of what we call history is the story of three conflicts. Consider the long, tragic history of the persecution of Jews or the lingering effects of slavery in the United States or the oppression of women in so many places around the world. The history department at any local university will tell at least a part of the truth about these evils. The multiculturalists will base everything on racial conflict. The Marxists will view history as a perpetual class struggle. The feminists will look at human relationships through the lens of gender. The walls are everywhere. Conflicts abound race against race. Class against, against class, gender against gender. This, is, this, this marks human relationships, conflict, division, hostility. With the gospel, that has changed in the church. In the church, our relationships have been transformed. There is neither, no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or female, slave or free, male or female, that's an interesting uh, contrast. <laughs> That's kind of true, though. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Edit that out later. All right? uh, there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? We're all one in Christ Jesus. Sad to say, you know, we have failed at every point here. I mean, maybe not just Cornerstone, any church, Christians at large have failed. Because we missed the gospel, because our default state of the human heart is legalism, because we're so spiritually proud, right? because we're so prone to the law rather than gospel and grace, we've missed out, we've missed out on this privileged relationship with God as our Father. We hang on to our old identity. We don't want to crucify the flesh. We don't want to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. And the church is marred by even these conflicts. These um, uh, division is existing in the church. And it's so sad. Uh, Whether it's based on race, based on social class, and based on gender, the church has been guilty of of such sins. Um, This was... um, these were three divisions that polarized the ancient world. I mean, we know of prayers by Greek men who thanked their deity for not being born a slave or born to a woman. Uh, a Jewish benediction was, I bless you, O Lord our God, that you have not made me a slave and not made me a woman. That kind of prejudice and bias Uh, has spilled over into the church by Christians bringing that kind of sinful thinking into the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Paul is saying, and he's speaking very specifically here about our our standing before God. He's not obliterating our distinctions 
we're not saying we should be androgynous. We're not saying we should all share our property so that we have no class distinction. We're all in the same class. He's not saying we should disavow our cultural uh, uh, identities or our cultural distinctives, right? So if you are uh, a Chinese American, then God created you in that way. As long as they do not uh, deviate or transgress the, the law of Christ, you should celebrate your culture, your heritage, your distinctive, right? If you're an Irish American, or if, you, if you're a uh, Hispanic American, if you're a Korean American, whatever you are, you should, we bring this into the body of Christ. God doesn't want an androgynous society in the church. Ma there is male and female, and we are to relate to each other in that, with that in mind, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, treat older men as fathers. Right? If someone's older than you, you should give that man honor. You should recognize that he's a male and his age. If he's younger, you should not despise him. You should love him as a brother. If there's a female and she's older than you, you should honor her as a woman and love her as a mom. If she's younger, love her as a sister with absolute purity. And uh, Philemon, Paul talks about Onesimus and, and Philemon and the, sla uh, the slavery issue, and he calls him to receive Onesimus back as a brother. He's not saying slavery is wrong, indentured servanthood. There is indentured servanthood now in the military. He's not saying it's wrong. He's saying receive him back as a slave, but more than that, he is now your brother. Right? Our different... Differences are to be embraced, accepted, and even celebrated. It shows God's, God's sovereignty, God's creative power, his design. But in terms of our justification, in terms of our, of our relationship with God, there is no hierarchy. There is no first-class Christianity. Second-class Christians and the third-class Christians based upon race, rank, or gender. Before Christ and in Christ, we are all one in Christ. We have equal standing. We have equal standing in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Colossians 3, 10, 11 here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Romans 10, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Three um, simple but important changes that has taken place with our justification. Our relationship with God has changed. We were, we were foreigners. We were separated from God. We were his enemies. He not only has saved us, he has adopted us into his family. Our identity, we are now in Christ. We are united with him through baptism we are in him, and he is in us. The old is gone, the new has come. And our relationship with one another has changed. We are able to love one another, accept one another, because Christ has accepted us, and we are all one before God in Christ Jesus. The time that I have remaining, I can go in so many different directions. Each of these points have a far-reaching implications for us in how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to one another. I just do not have the time to uh, follow through on all the, all the, all the uh, ways these truths affect our Christian lives. Instead of covering a lot of ground. I want to cover just one ground, hopefully, and try to go deep with just one path. And I want to focus your thoughts on the first point, uh, that you are now, we are all sons of God, and God is our Father. Implications of sonship, three implications. 
First is, um, as a son of God, we have the proof of his love for us. We have a clear evidence of his deep and rich love for us. Before this, we were filled with insecurity. When we were under the law, because of our just great sinfulness and weakness, because how we just fail again and again before God and before the law, before our own consciences, we were insecure about the Father's love for us, that he would accept us unconditionally, eternally and undeservedly. But now, in the gospel through faith, we have definitive proof of his never-ending, secure love for us in the death of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. If we look elsewhere for proof of his love, um, you will you will lose your identity. You will lose your security, your faith. If you base the Father's love for you on our fickle desires, you know, getting what we want in life, um, having things work out for us, having our own way at work or family or relationships, then you'll, we will miss out on this proof of God's love for us. God has declared his love for us once for all, and that is through the cross of Christ. We, we ought never to doubt his love for, for us. We ought never question. There's that John Owen uh, quote again, the greatest burden, the greatest unkindness that we can bestow on the Father is to doubt his love for us. The greatest way to cause God's heart to break is to question whether he loves us or not. Why? Because he has demonstrated his love for us by sending his precious son to die on, on behalf of our sins. The first implication of sonship is we must exalt in how God has loved us. We must, um, we must glorify God to the glory of the cross. Our boasting is in the cross. We can never get enough of the cross. We can never talk enough about Jesus. Jesus is our supreme gift. And if God takes away everything, he takes away our families, he takes our children, he takes our possessions, our reputations, he takes away our health, he takes away our life. But because he has given us Jesus Christ, we say, God is good. God has loved me. God has been nothing but faithful to me because of the gospel. 1 John 3, 1, behold, and that's a command. That's an imperative. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Every day, we ought to preach the gospel and behold and consider and reflect, meditate, ponder on this great privilege of having God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. That is the first and the most important uh, implication of sonship the cost that was paid for God the Father to adopt us. Secondly, in terms of faith, it goes beyond that. Faith, believing in the proof of his love, means that we see his intimate involvement and care in our daily lives. If you believe that God has given us his son to pay for our sins, it means we believe more than that, that he is involved in the most minutest details of our lives 
and we see his loving involvement. So this is where it's not prosperity gospel, right? It is not. It is faith gospel. If you believe that God has given us his son, how much more, Romans 8, will he give us graciously all things with him? That is practical faith. That is true faith. That is maturing faith. That is um, you know, the coin dropping. Right? That is getting the gospel. Getting the gospel means you believe in the gospel and his definitive proof for you on the cross. And you also see life in view of the gospel. You see all the gifts and even sufferings given to us by God's loving hand. And that is where our faith must be placed. That is, um, that is the, the real implication of faith. If you say you believe the gospel, but you're filled with complaining about your work, about your marriage, about your children, and you're questioning God, doubting God, angry at God, you're grumbling, and you're, you're, you're doubt-filled, and you're, you're paralyzed, then you're not carrying the gospel, the definitive proof of faith in you, to the cross, to your life. There's a disconnect where we should be connecting the two. Um, Matthew 6, uh, Christ said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here is God's faithfulness to creation. Have you considered the Father's faithfulness to you in your life? Seeing your life in view of the gospel means you're not anxious. You're trusting in the gospel because his faithfulness has been proved to us through the death of his son. Therefore, because we believe our Father is with us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us, never abandon us. We see our lives and all our cares in light of the gospel, so we live a life of trusting in Him, a life of humble confidence, a life of dependent security. Well, what about the rod and staff of God's care for us? What about the sufferings that we endure? The fatherhood of God, our sonship means that we see God's sovereign and loving purpose behind every suffering. We see God's loving and sovereign purpose behind every suffering. We, uh, we know and believe that all suffering experienced by children of God is redemptive. Right? 
has a purpose, has a sovereign design. It is God's divine care is behind every sorrow, every pain, every dis- disappointment, every heartache in our life. God is behind it. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In Hebrews 12, um, Hebrews 12.5, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You are not sons. God disciplines us for the good. And consider these four words that we might share, that he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness, that we might have the fruit of righteousness and peace. That is the Father's purpose behind every suffering. It is not in vain. There is a loving purpose for everything that we endure. And I'm going to close with this long quote by, before we put it up there, you know, we went to that class with uh, C.J. Mahaney a few weeks ago, and he gave us counsel that he received from an older pastor, and it was so helpful to us. He told us to prepare God's people for two things for personal suffering and relational conflict. For every single one of us here, right, if, you're, if you haven't experienced these things, it's just a matter of time. God loves us so much, but he loves us with a holy love. If he loved us with an insecure love, that many parents have towards their children. Many parents just lavish on their kids, just gifts and Disneyland and sports leagues and Chuck E. Cheese and ice cream and candy, thinking that is love. That's not, that's, you're loving yourself. You're not loving your children. God's love is not a sinful love. He has a holy love for us, meaning he seeks our holiness, not our comfort, not our pleasure, not our uh, happiness. He seeks holiness. Therefore, he reproves us, he chastises us, he disciplines us. It's not punishment, but it's training us to depend on Christ, trust in him, and to grow in holiness. And so he brings into our lives suffering and conflicts in relationships. And a work of the pastor is to prepare God's people for these things. I would not be doing my job if I was not preparing you for suffering, preparing you for conflict. And many times, Christ prepared his disciples for for suffering. You should not be surprised, for I have warned you, I told you. Paul said, I warned you with tears that you will endure these things. So I recommend just a few books. Um, especially if you're going through trials right now, a book by Charles Spurgeon, Besides Still Waters, a great book of excerpts from his sermons on suffering of the Christian life. Besides Still Waters, and then When God Weeps by Joni Erickson Tata. I'm sure you've heard of her. She was paralyzed neck down from an accident when she was, I think, 16 years old. Godly, godly woman. She wrote a book, When God Weeps. Um, 
Let me close our time with a quote by Spurgeon based upon Hebrews 12. God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins. God has punished them already in the person of Christ. He, their substitute, has endured the full penalty for all their guilt. And neither the justice nor the love of God can ever exact again that which Christ has paid. Punishment can never happen to a child of God in the judicial sense. He can never be brought before God as his judge, as charged with guilt, because that guilt was long ago transferred to the shoulders of Christ, and the punishment was exacted at the hands of his surety. But yet, while the sin cannot be punished, while the Christian cannot be condemned, he can be disciplined, chastised. While he shall never be arraigned before God's bar as a criminal and punished for his guilt, yet he now stands in a new relationship, that of a child to his parent. And as a son, he may be chastised on account of sin. Folly is bound up in the heart of all God's children, and the rod of the father must bring that folly out of them. It is essential to observe this distinction between punishment and Discipline or chastisement, punishment and chastisement may agree as to the nature of the suffering. The one suffering may be as great as the other. The sinner who while here is punished for his guilt may suffer no more in this life than the Christian who is only chastised by his parent. They do differ as to the nature of the punishment, but they differ in the mind of the punisher and the relationship of the person who is punished. God punishes the sinner on his own account because he is angry with that sinner. His justice must be avenged. His law must be honored. His commands must have their dignity maintained. But he does not punish the believer on his own account. It is on the Christian's account to do him good. He afflicts him for his profit. He lays on the rod for his child's advantage. He has a good design towards the person who receives the chastisement. While in punishment, the design is simply with God for God's glory. In chastisement, it is with the person chastised for his good, for his spiritual profit and benefit. Besides, Punishment is laid on a man in anger. God strikes him in wrath. But when he afflicts his child, chastisement is applied in love. His strokes are, all of them, put there by the hand of love. The rod has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. God does not afflict willingly nor grieve us for no reason but out of love and affection because he perceives that if he leaves us unchastised, he shall bring upon ourselves misery 10,000 fold greater than we shall suffer by his slight rebukes and the gentle blows of his hand. Take this in the very starting that whenever thy trouble or thine affliction, there cannot be anything punitive in it. Thou must never say, now God is punishing me for my sin. Thou hast fallen from thy steadfastness when thou talkest so. God cannot do that. He has once for all done it. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. He is training, disciplining, chastising thee, not punishing thee. He is correcting thee in measure. He is not smiting thee in wrath. There is no hot displeasure in his heart. Even though his brow may be ruffled, there is no anger in his breast. Even though his eye may have closed upon thee, he hates thee not. He loves thee still. He is not angry with his children, for he seeks no sin in Jacob, neither iniquity in Israel, considered in the person of Christ. It is simply because he loves you, because you are sons, that he therefore chastises you, disciplines you, brings suffering and relational conflicts 
into our lives, it is because we are indeed his sons and we are indeed bearers of his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love on the cross and your love for us in our lives. Your love for us is demonstrated by the declaration of the gospel and it's a clear proof of your love for us. And we also see your love in your tender care for us, providing for us all of our needs. And we, though we fail, we, through faith, see your love behind our sufferings, behind difficult relationships, behind disappointments in this world, in our lives, in ourselves. We know that your heart is filled with love as you chastise us, discipline us, and you correct us. So as your children, we say, Abba, Father, we thank you. We love you. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.